to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukma. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today, on By Any Means Necessary, we will be talking about the Federal Reserve hiking up interest rates and what that means for the economy. Also going to be uh, discussing a recent trucker strike in South Korea. Also going to be touching on how extreme heat is impacting poor working and oppressed people in the state of Texas. And as always, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we'll be taking your calls. But before we can move on, Jackie, tell them what's on your mind. On May 21st, the Biden administration signed into law the $40 billion package in security, humanitarian, and economic assistance for Ukraine. Now, that package brought the total U.S. assistance Congress has approved for Ukraine to nearly $54 billion since February 24th of this year. So far, Biden has transferred $11 billion in weapons to Ukraine and provided $9 billion to replenish depleted U.S. weapons stockpiles, $8.8 billion to support operations of Ukraine's government and combat human trafficking, $5 billion in global food assistance, $4.35 billion in international disaster aid, and $900 million to support refugees. And while the White House initially hoped to link the $40 billion package to billions more in domestic COVID-19 pandemic funding, basically Biden ultimately asked leaders to separate the two packages to allow Ukraine to get their money as quickly as possible. And just yesterday, Biden announced that the U.S. will send an additional $1 billion in military aid to Ukraine, the largest single tranche of weapons and equipment since the war began. This is hoped to stop Russia from taking the Donbass region, you know, that region in eastern Ukraine where the Kiev army was bombing and shelling ethnic Russians for eight years after the Kiev government criminalized everything Russian after the 2014 U.S.-backed coup. Recall that in 2014, the people of Donetsk and Luhansk in the Donbass region voted in referendums for independent self-rule or to break away from Ukraine, but Kiev and Washington refused to recognize those votes. Interestingly enough, the BBC reported at the time that Vladimir Putin himself had asked that they hold off on those referendum votes, but the people refused to wait for their self-determination. This followed those referendum votes. You understand a detachment of Ukraine's National Guard. Yes, the Azov Battalion, opening fire on a crowd of unarmed locals in the town of Krasnormaysk, killing one and wounding two. The authorities in Kiev said that they were carrying out, quote, anti-terrorist operations, end quote, but they had resulted in a number of deaths, like in Mariupol, when those same Ukrainian National Guard forces killed at least seven people. This was in 2014, folks. So when the Biden administration is sending billions of dollars in weapons to the Ukrainian army to fend off Russia taking the Donbass region, they are literally arming the people who refuse to recognize those people's right to self-determination in the first place and claiming they're liberating them from the Russians. 
even when Joint Chiefs Army General Mark Miley faced questions from reporters at a recent gathering of the U.S. and its collaborators in this ongoing war crime being committed in Ukraine on whether some of the weapons will arrive too late to prevent Russia from taking control of the Donbass, even Miley had to admit that they are fighting a losing battle. He said, quote, the Ukrainians are fighting them street by street, house by house, and it's not a done deal. There are no inevitabilities in war. War takes many, many turns. So I wouldn't say it's an inevitability, but I would say that the numbers clearly favor the Russians, end quote. Only it's not the Ukrainian people in Donbass who are fighting the Russians street by street and house by house, if that is even happening at all. It's the U.S.-backed and armed Kiev army that's doing that, and they will lose. Even General Miley admits that without actually saying it. But that's not going to stop the Biden administration and its ally countries from continuing to spend and send billions of dollars in weapons and aid to Ukraine for a losing cause that will only end up those weapons being sold on the black market like they are now, a lot of them. Meanwhile, in this country, we have to import baby formula. The homeless crisis is expanding. There's still no comprehensive plan for testing, tracing, or vaccinating the population against emerging COVID variants, even as a new virus called monkeypox is on the radar. Gas is over $5 a gallon in many places, and Biden does nothing but barely wag his finger at the fossil fuel companies that are really price gouging us and blaming Russia for it. Food prices are rising, especially beef, pork, and chicken. But Tyson Foods, one of the three meat industry monopolies, just recorded record profits. Real estate behemoths Compass and Redfin laid off hundreds of workers as the housing market is cooling down. Crypto is crashing. Well, it was a Ponzi scheme anyway. And the Federal Reserve just raised interest rates by 0.75%, the largest single increase in nearly 30 years to slow inflation. Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell said Wednesday that the central bank hopes to avoid a recession after ratcheting up its pace of interest rate hikes. We're not trying to induce a recession now. Let's be clear about that, Powell said. Well, the Fed may not be trying to induce a recession, but we're about to be in one anyway. But hey, at least Ukraine got their weapons and support for their government and their economy fast-tracked with $56 billion of our money. Follow Lukeman Nation on patreon.com slash Nation for lots of great content. In the middle of today's talking points, and you are listening to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here of Jackie Lukeman, and as always, we're your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movement shaping the world around us. By Any Means Necessary. And we're going to keep the movement moving on as they say. We're now happy to be joined by Dr. Jack Rasmus, an economist, radio show host, and the author of The Scourge of Neoliberalism. Dr. Rasmus, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. 
Absolutely. And Dr. Rasmus, the Federal Reserve has raised interest rates here in the United States by three quarters of a percentage point in the largest rate hike since 1994. That's 28 years since we've seen a rate uh, quite at this level. And I believe that you uh, may have actually predicted that it would at least be uh, that it would at least rise uh, by that much. And, you know, uh, purportedly this is being done to address the uh, uh, serious issue of inflation that's happening with the U.S. economy right now. And from your perspective, Dr. Rasmus, I mean, how are you seeing uh, uh, this uh, interest hike by the Federal Reserve? And do you think that it will uh, uh, have any sort of positive impact on the issue of inflation that the U.S. is dealing with right now? Yeah, well, it's not the last 75 basis points, which is like three quarters of a percent hike in what's called the Fed's uh, benchmark rate. Uh, We're going to see at least one more, maybe two more, and then uh, probably, you know, less increases. But we're going to continue to see these increases. This is unprecedented. The Fed has never raised rates this, this fast and this much. Uh, before. Uh, So uh, it's going to have a significant impact on the economy. The question is, is it going to have more impact on inflation or on the real economy and precipitate a recession? Uh, I think it's more the latter. Uh, The fact that the Fed had to increase rates or did increase rates so much is an indication that it's uh, getting pretty worried, as are investors, uh, that um, they're losing control of inflation. and uh, that's why they're raising so fast. You know, I, I found interesting, and in, uh, the, the Fed Chair Powell gave a press conference, as he always does afterwards, uh, and answered questions <clears throat> from the business media uh, about the, the increase. And uh, in the course of that, uh, he indicated a couple of times that he couldn't uh, – control a supply side inflation and he mentioned what that was that's like global supply chains that's like the war in in the ukraine uh he didn't mention sanctions but you can't separate sanctions from the war uh u.s sanctions on russia that is uh he mentioned uh, china which is partially shut down and uh, royal supply chains uh, even more shut down because of COVID. Uh, global problems still still persist. He said, well, you know, uh, we can't do anything about that. And he's right. Uh, but it's mostly a supply-side inflation that's going on. What the, the Fed can do is uh, impact demand, demand side, meaning consumer spending largely. And that's not really the the central problem with this inflation. Uh, although uh, now because the supply side inflation is, is out of control, it does have an impact on demand. Uh, and uh, you do find consumers and businesses uh, buying before the price goes up even more, which raises the price, i.e. increases demand. Uh, that's called inflationary expectations. Uh, and that's taken root now. Uh, and that's what's got the, uh, the Fed very worried, inflationary expectations. In fact, Jerome Powell mentioned uh, this latest University of Michigan survey about inflationary expectations. And it kind of spooked him, I think. Uh, so they see it getting into a qualitatively more difficult level, inflation, and they're losing control of it. 
but they can't control it because a lot of it is a global supply, particularly sanctions and war related. You look at the inflation, uh, over half of it has to do with energy prices, gasoline, oil prices, jet fuel, diesel fuel. Uh, uh, over half of it is that. Um, so that means mostly the sanctions and the war and some supply chains and uh, oil companies um, price gouging, taking advantage of it, not increasing uh, their output. U.S. oil companies used to uh, produce about 13 million barrels a day. Now they're producing a little over 11, so they could pump more. Uh, they're not really opening up the drilling rigs the way they should. Uh, the refineries aren't increasing their their output. So there's a concerted effort going on by oil corporations uh, to keep the supply low. Uh, internationally, you got the same thing going with the Saudis and OPEC. They won't significantly increase production. And then you got the sanctions, which are taking millions of barrels a day uh, off the market in Russia. So you got this engineered supply problem in or in energy. Uh, that's driving up uh, commodity prices, which you know oil is is a commodity, uh, which is being um, uh, you know bleeding into uh, consumer prices in the U.S. Consumer prices rose the last three months uh, about eight and a half percent per month, so they are chronic and they are embedded now. And now, as I said, we got inflationary expectations coming on top of that, and of course the war doesn't look like it's uh, going to change over there, uh, or or the sanctions. Um, and it's not just oil and energy, it's industrial commodities as well. Certain metals uh, mostly come out of Russia, um, you know, nickel and palladium that are important for cars and so forth, um, batteries, etc. cetera. Uh, they're sanctioned as well. Uh, and then agricultural products, you know, wheat, uh, Russia produces about 25, 30% of global wheat in Russia, Ukraine, uh, that's that's off the market. Uh, fertilizer, Russia produces 75% of uh, all potash, natural fertilizer. Well, the price of that goes up, and then it drives up, uh, in turn, the price of chemical fertilizers. So food prices go up. Uh, food processing uses a lot of oil, uh, so uh, energy, so their prices go up, and we see that happening across the board. Um, so we got chronic embedded inflation here on the consumer side, uh, driven mostly by uh, oil and other commodities and global supply chain problems. But the Fed can't do anything about that, and it 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 said that, <laughs> you know. So the Fed, and this is important to to realize, the Fed is taking out on demand, i.e., on the backs of consumers, U.S. consumers, uh, precipitating and a recession, and it knows it is, and the markets know they are, and they like that, believe it or not. Uh, the capitalists say, uh, you know, are saying to themselves, we need to have that event here to take out on the backs of, an, uh, of the consumer, demand side, what is really a supply side, war and sanctions and global supply chains, uh, oil company price gouging problem. Uh, so I don't think it's going to have a lot of effect on inflation. Uh, until they raise interest rates so high that it precipitates, precipitates a, a recession, which is coming, which, by the way, is exactly like what they did in 1981-82 under a different, uh, at the time, Paul Volcker, the central bank chairman. They precipitated a deep recession to deal with the supply-side oil shortage crisis uh, that was driving prices uh, into double-digit 
and uh, precipitating uh, uh, inflationary expectations. So they're doing it again. And that's the, one of the roles of the Fed, you see, uh, to uh, put the Fed in the hot seat uh, to do something about inflation by causing a recession uh, so that the politicians don't have to take the heat. They can only say, well, the Fed did that. You see, that's one of the reasons they created the Fed, take the heat off the elected politicians. Uh, so I don't see uh, much of, a, of, of a, an abatement of inflation over the summer. In fact, you're going to see at least one more, maybe two more 75 basis points. And we already see the impact of that uh, going on in the stock market. Right. I mean, the stock markets are are almost in free fall globally. Uh, so uh, you're coming closer to a financial instability event as well as these prices go up uh, and uh, price, you know, interest rates go up and inflation goes up. And now you 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 engineer a recession. Uh, Companies don't have cash flow to pay for the greater debt because the rates are going up. Uh, that's a formula for, for a crisis, a uh, financial crisis. At the same time, emerging market economies are in even deeper doo-doo uh, because as inter uh, in interest rates go up, it drives the value of the U.S. dollar up which is a global trading currency, right? And that's happening. But when that happens, it means the currencies of other countries collapse. And that's happening too. Even currencies of uh, countries like uh, Japan, the yen, uh, even the pound and the euro are all going down and other emerging market uh, uh, currencies are, are collapsing even further. Well, what that means is that uh, uh, those countries raise their interest rates to protect their currency and that pushes them into a deeper recession already happening uh, than the U.S. So you see it, um, this, this this thing, because the U.S. is the global empire and the dollar is the linchpin of the global empire, higher interest rates won't really do much about inflation. They will do something about generating a currency crisis, which in effect means a global recession going on. Um, and and that's the kind of scenario we we face. Uh, you know, the talk now among talking heads is, uh, uh, oh, you know, okay, so maybe there'll be a recession. Well, I was predicting a recession here uh, last November, December. And don't forget, the U.S. economy contracted in the first quarter already, minus 1.4 percent. And the Atlanta Fed now uh, is forecasting. It's a it's a GDP forecasting. Uh, statistic, uh, zero growth this quarter. So technically, we're almost in a recession, and we're just starting to raise these prices. Um, it's inevitable. Recession is coming. Inflation is continuing. That's called stagflation when you got both. And uh, it's coming earlier than people think. I think the recession, I was saying before, first quarter next year, I'd, I'd move that up. I think you know somewhere around November, December, you're going to see the recession here uh, in the U.S., it's interesting, one last comment on the Fed. It's interesting to note that the Fed, uh, in its report it puts out, the little book here, every time it raises rates, it's predicting, it's predicting there will be no recession. It's predicting there'll be what they call a soft landing. Uh, if you look at its, its prediction data, it's saying that 18 months from now, beginning of 2024, inflation will be brought down to 2%. Right? It's at eight and a half percent, and producer prices are actually higher, eleven percent. 
Uh, it'll be down to 2%, and there won't be any more unemployment. Uh, the unemployment rate is 3.7% now. This It's only going to rise to 4.1%. In other words, they're going to get inflation down by this record, rapid, and highest increase in interest rates. Uh, without precipitating a recession, inflation is going to come down to 2%, and there's going to be no unemployment. I mean, that is so damn silly. Uh, I mean, that's not even economics. That's, that's just misrepresentation of what's going to happen. Uh, anyway, that's my take, my comment on, on the Fed. Uh, we will have a recession now. question is only how soon. It will not control uh, much of inflation uh, because it's mostly supply side and sanctions re related. Um, and uh, there will be a recession. There won't be a soft landing. Uh, and we're in for a period of uh, very much economic instability going forward here, uh, maybe even a financial crisis a couple years from now. Uh, and the Democrats are going to get wiped out in November as a result. Mm. Particularly because, uh, Dr. Rasmus, consumers are already seeing that there is something not quite right about the economy, whether consumers go to the gas uh, uh pump, whether they go to the grocery store, um, whether they were expecting a raise <laughs> for most workers. When we pay more for uh, goods and services, and at the same time, they're watching the news and they're seeing that companies like Tyson Foods, one of the three major uh, meat uh, processing uh, monopolies in the country, just posted record profits earlier this year, but we know that uh, meat is higher at the grocery store, uh, the fossil fuel companies are uh, posting record profits, but gas is over $5 a gallon. I mean, clearly, if people don't understand how uh, the war in Ukraine, uh, the sanctions against Russia and the interest rates uh, supply side or whatever affects the economy and what a recession is, people clearly know that the economy in this country is not favoring them right now for sure. So how much worse could people expect it to get for them? Yeah, well, uh, I think uh, the politicians, you know, in the Beltline there or whatever, have no idea how angry people are. Uh, people are hurting really bad. Uh, you know, remember that, um, what, two-thirds of the American families were living paycheck to paycheck, right? And now you're taking, uh, what, 10, 20 percent maybe of their income away uh, because of inflation here. Uh, they are really upset here. Um, and you know, they may not know it. it is directly related to the sanctions and the war and the supply side. They may not understand all that, but they do understand that their income is really taking a big hit and they are really hurting. Uh, at the same time, the U.S. is sending tens of billions of dollars uh, halfway across the world uh, to bail out a country that uh, you know, they don't see in their interest at all. Uh, they can figure that out, I think. You know, And um, as I said, there's going to be a slaughter here in November Notwithstanding the fact that a lot of Congress is gerrymandered and these these seats are safe, you know, there's only what 50, 
40, 50 seats that are really uh, ever competitive. Uh, but I think even some of the gerrymandered say, uh, uh, seats are going to be dumped here. Um, but people know what, what's what's going on, I think. They know their pocketbooks, uh, and, and they kind of know the politicians, you know. If you look at the solutions— <laughs> Uh, both the Biden and the Republican solutions, uh, none of them really address uh, the problem. Look, you know, they could deal with this. The politicians could deal with this. You know, uh, were I there, what I would do immediately slap a price freeze on uh, certain food and, and gasoline and diesel. I would immediately impose a price freeze on that and roll back those manufactured prices at least 20 percent and have a price freeze to see where it goes. Then I would pass a uh, windfall profits tax, those companies that have been price gouging. And you mentioned, you know, like Tyson's and the oil companies and the bakery companies. Uh, and other, these are monopolistic companies now that control, three or four of them control uh, pretty much the, the whole market that they're in. So that they have market power and they can raise rates Many of them don't have a problem with supply, but they're raising rates because they can, and everyone expects prices to go up. You see, they're price gouging, and you don't hear much of that in the business or, or the general media, uh, that part of this inflation is price gouging out and out, not even supply or demand uh, by these monopolistic uh, huge corporations going on. So you got to attack those corporations that are price gouging. Right, uh, short term, a price freeze and a rollback, uh, 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 an excess profits tax to take back some of their gouging, and then I think you really need to look longer term uh, to, um, you know, uh, nationalize some of these companies. You know, I would pick off one of these oil companies and nationalize it, and uh, you know, put the fear of God into the rest of them. You know, you better follow the price lead of the nationalized company. But of course, you're going to need socialism for that. <laughs> you need a revolution for that. They'll never allow that to happen. But then you you could do that economically is my point. But none of those kind of measures are being even discussed, you see. It's all this silly stuff that is, you know, chipping around the, uh, you know, the margins of, of the supply problem here. Oh, let's open the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, the government, and sell some of our oil to the oil company, U.S. oil companies. And yeah, okay, so they have an auction in the oil companies and buy, buy the strategic oil uh, at below market prices and keep their own oil in the ground, you see, so you never really get any true increase in the supply of oil. Or go hat in hand like Biden is now to uh, uh, the murderer over there, Bin Salman, in the Saudi, uh, Saudi Arabia and say, uh, oh, we'll give you more F-35s if you pump more oil, right? Or go, even go to Venezuela and say, okay, we're going to lift our sanctions. You can send more oil to Europe because we got Europe uh, to agree to an oil embargo which, by the way, isn't really happening until December. Uh, so why are these, these prices of oil going up everywhere, even before the sanctions hit? Uh, well, they're going up uh, uh, because you've got global speculators, capitalist speculators, who, who buy and sell contracts in the oil futures market. It's a commodities market, right? Uh, they're jacking up the price in anticipation of sanctions even. And then you've got 
shipping companies are jacking up their price and ship insurance companies jacking up theirs. So the capitalists everywhere are taking advantage of this situation, uh, which are only going to get worse when the real sanctions hit. Um, it's a political thing. You know, it's, it's a capitalist thing that's causing all of this. And uh, they're playing around the margins, letting you think that, uh, oh, you know, we got a solution to this. Biden has no solution. Absolutely none. And Republicans is even worse. You know, I won't go over their their crazy policies, but uh, uh, both wings of the corporate party of America, you know, a.k.a. the Timidcrats and the Republicans uh, have no solution uh, to this, except let's have the Fed generate a recession. Right. Well, we thank you so much, Dr. Rasmus, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. We're move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about a recent labor strike in South Korea. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation today by Erica Jung, a member of the Nodu Doll for Korean Community Development. Erica, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you for having me. Absolutely. And uh, Erica, here recently, we saw uh, organized truckers in South Korea go on an eight-day strike over issues of pay and things like this. And this uh, eight-day strike, it had a, a quite an impact on South Korea, which, uh, to my understanding, is a country that relies uh, heavily on exports. And according to Reuters, um, that eight-day strike actually cost uh, the industry more than $1.2 billion in uh, lost output and unfulfilled uh, deliveries. And this is according to the uh, uh, industry ministry. And I was hoping you could help us understand, you know, some of the context around how this uh, uh, strike came about and uh, uh, where it sort of stands today. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So in the past week, over 6,000 truckers, many of them unionized, some of them non-unionized, went on strike demanding, like you said, um, you know, the increase, fighting back against the increase in fuel prices and demanding an increase in their pay and also an extension of a safe rate system that would guarantee them minimum pay. And this was introduced at the beginning of the pandemic. It was set to expire in December. Uh, meanwhile, drivers have been forced to sustain themselves through a 46% increase in gas prices which they have been trying to like pay for themselves out of pocket. And so because they're not being guaranteed these productions and they're not being guaranteed a minimum wage, despite these um, price fluctuations in oil, um, that they've been demonstrating at major ports. They've been halting trucking activities at petrochemical complexes and one of the world's biggest supplies for semiconductors, smartphones, cars, batteries, and electronics. So just two days ago, on Tuesday, June 14th, uh, the negotiations did come to an end. The Ministry of Trade, Industry, and Energy 
agreed to consider extending the current rules on minimum wage guarantees and increasing fuel subsidies for truckers. In exchange, the union uh, stated that the drivers would immediately return to work. Yeah. And, you know, they have to do something uh, about the demands of the truckers because, you know, just this short strike caused a a loss of, uh, you know, one point two billion dollars in, in, you know, not being able to uh, have goods shipped to the market. Uh, Sixty eight hundred truckers rallied across various sites. So even though, you know, the ministry said that they will consider uh, the demands of the truckers, what will happen if uh, those demands are not actually met, the truckers do not get what they want, are they prepared to go right back on strike? It's unclear if the ministry and the government overall will actually enforce these agreements. As they said, they will consider extending the current rules on minimum wage guarantees and consider increasing fuel subsidies. So we get to see under the Yoon government, his stance has been far from supportive. While officially he takes on a neutral position, uh, this essentially means that he's um, not going to intervene on behalf of labor to negotiate a deal with um, corporate bosses and the opposition to extend the minimum wage guarantees. And more than that, roughly 44 people were arrested and two were formally detained for illicit activities from these demonstrations by the police. So it goes to show his stance on labor organizing and what's happening in South Korea. Uh, with these terms don't are not enforced, it's unclear what is going to happen. However, the, the union that is backing up this um, trucker strike is part of a larger confederation, Korean Confederation of Trade Unions, the KCTU, which has around 1.1 million members. So they've already had the backing for this past strike, but um, if these terms are met, uh, there might be some coordination between the two groups in the future for future labor organizing. Yeah, definitely. You know, you know the uh, KCTU uh, on the front lines there, often of the uh, uh, South Korean sort of labor struggle. And you you mentioned uh, South Korean President uh, Yoon Suk Yeol, uh, Erica, and that actually leads me to to my next question, which is really a, a, a two parter. Which, sort of broadly speaking, I mean, you know, how do you see? Um, the labor policy, if you will, of a Yoon Suk Yeol sort of reflected in his response um, to uh, the strike, which you just touched on. And how do you see it also reflected in the reality of South Korea's economy right now, which I understand is going through its own issues? Yeah, so Yoon has basically been calling for eroding um, past protections on workers' rights. He even called trade unions the frontline guards of his political opponents and instigators of trouble. And so, in a way, he's adopted the strategy of remaining distant from the strike and instead pivoting attention towards North Korea's, uh, you know, weapons test as a way of diverting attention. And under the Moon president last year, there was actually legislation to extend the safe rate system for truckers in parliament. However, that bill is currently weighed down in the legislature with no sign of a compromise. And it's unlikely that it will get the support of Yoon to actually follow through. So Yoon, even though Yoon has criticized unions during his presidency, he seems to be taking, treading carefully so as to avoid the same path that 
other conservative leaders have walked down by repressing labor unions. You didn't even respond regarding the strike. How can a person who is hostile toward labor become a politician? Um, whether this, you know, stance accurately reflects his views or not, um, that's another question. However, he seems to be trying to stay neutral while at the same time taking um, a strategic position on how to navigate this. Um, in reality, the South Korean economy is heavily unequal, right? There are, there's a massive amount of wealth concentration in the hands of a few. In fact, the top 10% of earners claimed 45% of total income in 2016. And the South Korean people overall have very little say, very little ownership of the country's economy. Yeah. And, you know, you were speaking on the the wealth gap, uh, the serious wealth gap that is present in uh, uh, South Korea. And I'm wondering what what's really driving that? Well, what's driving the inequality that we're seeing inside the country right now? Because it sounds like if, if we're seeing so much wealth concentrated in the hands of a few, well, then that must mean that there's a whole lot of folks that are going without. Yeah, definitely. So, you know, in the 80s, um, under Chun Doo-hwan's the U.S. puppet's leadership in South Korea, South Korea began taking on a lot of neoliberal measures that cut down on workers' rights and and said this was a way of attracting foreign capital and investment. And so because of these measures that were implemented decades ago, workers' rights have been getting more and more eroded decade after decade. Um, In fact, the average South Korean has less say in government than U.S. corporations, which have power under the 2007 U.S.-Korea Free Trade Agreement to legally contest laws that they find unfavorable. And so there's also the role of uh, major Korean conglomerates, right, the Chebbles. In fact, only 64 Chebbles claim 84% of the GDP, yet they provide only 10% of the jobs. But there's a big incentive for these troubles to have the power that they do. They benefit the South Korean economy, and they reap all the benefits of economic growth while the workers are not seeing those benefits being redistributed to them. Well, Erica, you said the magic word, uh, neoliberalism, and that's what I uh, suspected may have been the the, the case when uh, uh, discussing this. And I have to wonder, like when we sort of look at the historical development of South Korea as a country and particularly with its uh, relationship with the the West, uh, uh, even vis-a-vis the DPRK as well. I mean, uh, do you see that as a part of the factor in terms of uh, uh, how South Korea's economy and the conditions for the masses of its people have sort of uh, uh, grown uh, up until this point? Or, I mean, do you think that's more of a minor factor? It's just how, how much uh, influence do you think or how much of an impact has uh, South Korea's relationship with the West had uh, on conditions inside the country today, do you think? Mm-hmm. So I mentioned Chun Doo-hwan before as a U.S. puppet. You know, this U.S. government has a big incentive to keep the neoliberal capitalist model maintained in South Korea because it actively benefits them and the global capitalist order that they're trying to maintain. So I would say there's a very intimate relationship between um, you know, the economic model and the government of South Korea and the U.S. And so the right-wing government that's been upheld by the U.S., Chun Doo-hwan, cracked down on labor organizers, uh, communists, and a lot of other dissidents. And so this kind of political history of repression has 
changed since then. However, the legacies of it are still remnant. And it's not just through uh, political repression. This happens through its education, um, through the U.S. government actively propagating right-wing um, education in the South Korean school systems. So it, it's very holistic in a sense. Um, they're targeting the culture of uh, people through many angles, through the schools, through political repression. And so it's led to this moment where there is extreme um, income inequality where the corporations have most of the power and the South Korean people have very little say in what they want to enact. The workers don't get to make decisions and trade deals and what the government is taking on in terms of its economy. And of course, this sounds like a, a, a perfect breeding ground for uh, resistance because repression does breed resistance. So on the heels of this uh, seemingly uh, successful or at least impactful trucker strike, uh, do you sense that there is a growing movement in the larger labor uh, movement in uh, South Korea to uh, seize on that momentum and continue and even uh, redouble and increase? the efforts to fight for a lessening of this inequality and for more workers' rights in the days to come, even under uh, a repressive uh, administration that exists now? Yeah, definitely. Well, actually, just this past October, at least half a million workers in South Korea from various sectors, uh, construction, transportation, service, other sectors, walked off their jobs in a one-day general strike. And this was largely organized by the country's largest labor union umbrella, the KCTU, as I mentioned before. And these demands were to um, kind of outline three basic points. The first being abolish irregular work. This means part-time, temporary contract labor with little to no benefits and to extend labor protections to all workers. The second point is to give workers power and economic restructuring decisions during times of crisis. And the third demand is to nationalize key industries and socialize basic services like education and housing. And so that was a big action that happened just this past October with cooperation across various sectors of the Korean working class. The reason that the ministry um, just recently agreed to come to the negotiating table with the truckers is because they didn't want this to devolve into another general strike. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Erica, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about uh, serious issues uh, inside the state of Texas, which is experiencing extreme heat. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation today by Brianna Griffin a journalist with Liberation News. Brianna, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. 
Absolutely. And Brianna, the state of Texas has been facing heat in the triple digits here lately, which is having a serious impact on a lot of the people in the state. I mean, there's uh, the issue in Odessa as this uh, heat wave uh, hits the state of uh, people not having access to water, I believe, because of a water line that uh, uh, broke sometime uh, here recently. And uh, what can you sort of tell us about uh, not only what's been happening uh, uh, in Odessa, but how the heat in Texas has been impacting other people there? Yeah, it's certainly a, a compounding set of scenarios um, that very much, um, you know, is related undoubtedly to global warming. And it's been just, you know, <laughs> totally, absolutely brutal uh, two weeks back to back of, um, you know, mostly over 100 degree days. Um, this is, of course, causing record uh, electricity demand as well, even as electricity prices skyrocket. Um, so it's, you know, it's certainly there, there's been kind of a cycle going on with regard to, you know, demanding uh, like the increasing demand uh, on the uh, electric grid then sort of creates this problem where uh, more fossil fuels are being burned, which, of course, in the long term uh, creates more of a climate change issue, which creates more demand on the electricity. So you see where these issues are headed. You can see the problems that they are causing for uh, Texas residents, not only the heat issues, but also the, the water and other infrastructure issues. Um, you know, what happened in Odessa is absolutely terrible. Uh, you know, 100,000 or more people without water for 48 hours. You know, so, so we're really seeing, I think, all of the problems with infrastructure and global warming uh, sort of coming to a head uh, in Texas at the moment. Well, you know, reports are indicating that wind and solar power are bailing out, so to speak, Texas amid this uh, record heat and energy demand. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering, is that true? I mean, is the renewable energy uh, grid, uh, so to speak, uh, so developed in Texas that it's actually able to make up for uh, the antiquated systems of the fossil fuel, the electric and the gas and oil powered energy sources? Yeah, so basically, Texas, I think right now is uh, close to half and half. I could be wrong on that. I know natural gas is about 44% of the grid. Um, but what, you know, if you go through large parts of uh, West Texas, you see as many, if not more, uh, windmills as you do uh, kind of oil drills and whatnot. And so certainly, you know, the, the wind and solar have overperformed in these cases of extreme heat. They overperformed last year during the, the winter storm that killed 700 people. Um, and wind and solar are really proving themselves now um, as being able to generate, um, you know, as much as uh, 40% of the electricity needed during uh, kind of peak uh, demands. Um, and so, yeah, this is going to have to be the future, not just in terms of not just in terms of what's better for the environment, but in terms of what's actually going to be able to meet uh, people's demands for energy. It, it has to be green energy, despite what uh, so many Texas politicians are saying all the time. Um, another issue there is that infrastructure is actually getting in the way of the amount of uh, wind and solar that's being produced. So about half of the solar that could be produced in Texas right now is actually not being produced because there's no more room for transmission on the kind of antiquated uh, power lines. And so, you know, Texas needs kind of these more transmission lines and more storage in order to, you know, in order to accommodate all of the energy that wind and solar are able to uh, produce at the moment. Yeah, and Brianna, I'm also curious <clears throat> the role of 
the elect the Electric Reliability Council of Texas or ERCOT in all of this. I mean, this is the same council um, that basically failed the people of Texas uh, uh, when there was a cold snap there uh, uh, not long ago. And I mean, people died. I mean, it was a serious sort of uh, issue that happened. I mean, there were rolling blackouts. I mean, you know, it, it, it it's obvious to say, but it's true. I mean, you know, you think of a state like Texas, people are not uh, uh, used to uh, you know, dealing with those kinds of extreme uh, temperatures when you talk about cold and when we talk about the grid uh, that is supposed to really handle uh, uh, those sorts of issues, uh, as you mentioned, you know, the infrastructure piece is simply not there and people suffered and died uh, as a result. And so, I mean, is ERCOT playing any kind of role in addressing this heat issue? And if so, uh, what are they saying? What are they doing? ERCOT has mostly been on the sidelines. One of the things that they've kind of been constantly warning about um, is the increase on demand and the stress um, that this is creating on the uh, power plants. In particular, the demand is creating the most stress on the oil and, uh, uh, sorry, the the natural gas uh, primarily. Um, These are sort of unable to recover during these heat waves without the the green energy, without the wind and solar energy um, really there to bail them out. But ERCOT has largely not really been playing an active role in trying to prevent all of this. Um, You know, electric rates, for instance, for much of Texas are 70% higher on average uh, than they were a year ago. Um, And so, you know, what ERCOT actually does, I think we have to understand that ERCOT is not there to, you know, it's not a public institution that bolsters, for instance, the infrastructure. ERCOT's, uh, you know, sort of mission statement, so to speak, ERCOT's reason for existence is to make Texas a seem like a more uh, profitable place for investment. And that's essentially their role is to make uh, these private companies or, or entice these private companies to invest in the Texas energy grid. But there's no sort of public entity that steps in and says, this is what we need. We need more infrastructure and we're going to build it whether it's profitable or not, which is ultimately what we would need. So ERCOT essentially stands on the sidelines. They say you need to conserve electricity. They say we might be facing this issue, that issue. Um, But they don't really do much in terms of either preventative measures or sort of active response. Yeah. And when you talk about this 70 percent rise in these compounding issues that you mentioned earlier with uh, rising energy prices while there's also more demand uh, because of the extreme heat. I mean, it's hard not to feel, Brianna, like there has to be a uh, both a race and class element to how this is playing out in terms of who's the most impact. Because when you talk about Texas, I mean, you're talking about a state, you know, whose uh, poor and working classes are mostly black, mostly Latin and what have you. And it seems like these are the elements that uh, stand to be the most impacted and the most harmed uh, by this whole uh, situation. And like you say, with ERCOT being a private entity, uh, we don't see the kind of uh, uh, measures and resources being put in place um, that should be, that will literally help sustain life and enable people to have the things that they need and to be able to operate uh, uh, normally as they should. You know what I mean? So how do you see those sort of uh, race and class elements playing out in terms of how uh, this heat issue is impacting Texas at this moment? Yeah, I think the starkest example, um, you know, of that in terms of the race and class elements actually happened last year when we saw that um, during the the shutoffs during the winter storm, uh, the communities that lost power first, the neighborhoods that were just completely shut off, 
were primarily the working class black and brown neighborhoods, black and Latino neighborhoods, um, while, you know, empty downtown office buildings stayed on through the entirety of the freeze uh, very often. And I think that, you know, it sort of plays out kind of over and again, where those who have access to uh, the, you know, resources to either just buy bottled water during these periods and say Odessa or whatnot, or those who otherwise have access to travel, et cetera, um, just have more, <laughs> have way more options to them. I mean, uh, you know, so many Texas cities are, you know, already kind of hotbeds of environmental racism. I'd point to Houston where, you know, black and brown communities are often the sites of, uh, kind of these horrific, uh, chemical treatment plants and whatnot. Um, and also to kind of West Texas where, you know, primarily, uh, kind of heavily Latino neighborhoods like uh, Odessa um, are the ones most affected by, you know, for instance, the water breakage and whatnot. But even, I mean, if you've ever been to West Texas, a lot of that uh, water is already just tainted forever anyway because of just the amount of oil uh, drilling and the amount of fracking that's been going on. So this is this is certainly systemic. It uh, definitely affects uh, black and brown neighborhoods, you know, the most heavily. And it's it's a problem we need to address for sure. Yeah, and and, and uh, along the lines of uh, the problem that needs to be addressed, what is being done uh, at the state level? What is the uh, government doing? What are elected officials doing? Of course, you know, uh, mutual aid and other uh, charitable organizations obviously mobilize in, in times like this. But I am curious of the government response to uh, the suffering that people are enduring because of this failure of uh, capitalism to actually take care of people. Oh, yeah. Well, we have such an absolute faith in uh, the Texas state-level government. I'm sorry, I can't say that with a straight face. Um, Greg Abbott had already declared last year that everything, the word to use, where everything that needs to be done to fix the power grid has already been done. So the, the state government and ERCOT have washed their hands of responsibility here. As far as they are concerned, everything has already been fixed. And so that leaves us, essentially, that leaves the communities really in charge of how we mobilize for this. Um, so one of the one of the things that recently happened in Texas, there was um, the Texas Eco-Socialism Conference in uh, April of this year. Uh, we, we brought together, you know, different uh, environmental activists and socialist, uh, yeah, socialist organizers uh, to talk about what real solutions would look like and how we, you know, fight back for that. I think a key element of that is going to have to be that we understand this to be a full community fight that we get all those community organizations um, as well as uh, kind of unions, tenant unions involved, that we understand this to be kind of a, a full spectrum struggle um, against the problems we're facing. There is also a new uh, co uh, coalition, a new organization that has been uh, founded to address this. This is called Power. Uh, that's Public Ownership of Water and Electric Resources. Um, that's at uh, wepowertx.com as well as uh, on social media at WePowerTX. Um, so, you know, the, I believe the foundation for a fight back for public utilities, for the true ownership of, you know, the, the elect, electric and uh, water grids, the true ownership by the people of these systems, it's the only thing that's really going to bail us out in the long term. And so the foundation is being laid, the infrastructure is being laid so that we can fight and demand that across the state. Definitely. I think it's interesting, Brianna, how you mentioned how you all had a eco-socialism conference to to address these sorts of things. And I was hoping you could break down, you know, why that wasn't important for you all to uh, uh, really discuss and really um, 
build from as a concept, given how we see how uh, capital is sort of actively harming people as it pertains to these issues in Texas? Yeah, so eco-socialism, I think, is absolutely vital. We need to understand, for instance, um, that, you know, while wind and, and solar are increasing parts of the energy grid, I mean, natural gas, even to this day, again, is still almost half the energy grid. That's, uh, that's the, uh, the system that essentially failed. Natural gas essentially dried up during the last uh, major disaster here while wind and solar overperformed. Um, but then the other part of this is that while, um, you know, these energy companies described that moment as, quote, unquote, hitting the jackpot, there was a, a CEO or another high-level executive who had said that the winter storm that killed hundreds of people was, like, quote, unquote, hitting the jackpot in terms of their profits, that same year, a uh, wind uh, turbine company lost something like 18% of the shares of its, um, the, the, the value of its shares. Because the winds, um, essentially wind power, wind turbines are becoming too cheap to produce to turn a profit. So essentially, we don't know how to turn a profit with all of the wind energy we're able to produce. And so we can see right there the contradiction that's taking shape that like the free market is not going to solve these problems because the free market can't profit from something it can give away for free. So that's where eco-socialism comes into this that we need to, you know, put these in the hands of the people, that we need to do this not on a for-profit basis, but on a basis of human need and uh, environmental need as well. That's the only way that we're going to, you know, really uh, avert the catastrophe that we're facing. Definitely. And we want to encourage people to check out public ownership of water and electric resources at WePowerTX.com. We want to thank you so much, Brianna, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Oh, yes, we're here. We're back. Top of the hour. It is Thursday, June 16, 2022. And of course, in 20 minutes, you'll be able to give us a call by any means necessary to give us your thoughts, ideas, questions or concerns about anything you've heard on the show today. Anything at all relevant happening on this earth. We want to hear from you. But that's not the only way that folks can get in touch with us here on the show. And if you will, please, Jackie, let the folks know how they can holler at us. That's right, Sean. There are so many ways for our allies, accomplices, and comrades, that's y'all, to reach out and touch us at By Any Means Necessary here in Washington, D.C. You can do that at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Time by calling us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But you can also listen to our shows at SputnikNews.com slash radio. Click on the plus sign and type in By Any Means Necessary. You can also hear us on Sputnik dot mave that's m-a-v-e dot digital and you can listen to us live on your radio dial at 105.5 fm and 1390 a.m in the washington dc area from 2 to 4 p.m eastern time each weekday and we are streaming live 
for your viewing pleasure right now on Rumble. Rumble.com slash C slash B-A-M. Necessary. The chat is live. And remember, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern today, you can call us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But wherever you are in this world and however you do it, we want to hear from you. We most certainly do. We most certainly do. And uh, at the top of the hour today, uh, today would have been the 51st birthday of Tupac Amaru Shakur. Of course, not only a hip hop legend that was uh, murdered and uh, taken from us far too soon, but someone who is uh, a part of, uh, 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 I'm not even sure what to call it, Black Power Royalty, if you want to use it in that way, with uh, his mother being uh, Feeney Shakur of the uh, Panther 21 in New York City, and of course, uh, being raised also by uh, Matulu Shakur, a political prisoner who continues to be incarcerated, free Dr. Matulu Shakur, and all political prisoners Rest in peace to Tupac. But be that as it may, we're happy to be joined for the hour today by John Jeter, award-winning journalist and foreign correspondent, radio and television producer, bluesologist and decolonizer, and author of the book, Flat Broke in the Free Market, How Globalization Fleeced Working People. John, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, thank you for having me, Sean. Absolutely. And you know, John, earlier in the show today, we were talking to uh, economist Dr. Jack Rasmus about the interest rate hike uh, in the United States, which is actually the largest uh, in 28 years since 1994 uh, in a move that is being sort of portrayed as uh, a possible way to try to, you know, keep uh, the worst of inflation at bay, though it doesn't quite seem like it's going to be successful in that. And I mean, I was also looking at this uh, piece in Bloomberg about fears around uh, what's called stagflation and all these sorts of things that are developing around this time as well. And it seems to me that the situation, the economic situation in the United States is sort of part and parcel of um, the sort of deep social decay that is uh, really taking hold in this country or what we call on by any means necessary the rot that that has set in on uh, uh, in the United States. I mean, just one of uh, many pressing issues that are uh, uh, really uh, shifting and creating deep uh, uh, tensions uh, socially, politically, and uh, uh, economically. And I'm wondering how you sort of see uh, uh, this economic piece uh, factoring in here, you know, as people are, are paying more for gas, of course, the price of food and other things are going up. And, you know, if, if we believe President Joe Biden, then it's Vladimir Putin's fault that uh, we're having these issues. It's Putin's price hikes that we're living through. There's just, there's always this, you know, uh, necessity and need for the, you know, the U S to try out a boogeyman to deflect from its own problems. But, but I'm definitely wondering how you're seeing it and what do you think the impacts could be for sort of your average working person in this country? Oh boy. Um, we just have an hour, huh? <laughs> uh, I, I think, I think the prospects could be very dire. Uh, you know, we can't completely say what's going to happen. What we do know is that uh, the United States, nor has any country in the history of the world, ever been in the predicament that we are in right now. The United States essentially addressed the Great Recession, which uh, happened, in, I believe it started in December of 2007, but let's say 2008, 
we addressed that in a way that no country has really addressed a uh, an asset bubble before. Usually what happens with an asset bubble is that uh, the state will uh, cut off a portion of the debt that has been accumulated because it's illegitimate, and they will put bankers and other people who are responsible for that debt in jail as a way to discourage it. Uh, the United States, and, and this must be said, the nation's first black president handled the 2008 asset bubble, which was subprime mortgages, disproportionately so to black and brown people. Uh, he handled that in the complete opposite way. He gave the banks more money, which left the debts intact and encouraged them to do it again. He did not uh, jail a single banking executive. Uh, 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 what's his name? The guy who went to prison for ripping off rich people, but nobody went to jail for ripping off working class people. And so what we've been doing basically since 2008, almost nonstop, uh, is basically printing uh, national income, GDP. It's been a matter of printing because people don't have the buying power that we used to. And so stagflation is very um, likely, uh, but actually the crisis is likely to be much worse than that because what we've been doing basically is... is, is um, uh, basically printing money out of thin air. It's not based on any kind of economic productivity or activity. Uh, and so inf not only is inflation um, very much likely, but also um, uh, the, 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 the economic downturn that's caused by uh, uh, raising these interest rates, which were almost zero. We were almost, um, the banks during uh, much of the last 14 years was flirting with 0% interest rates or even negative interest rates as, as we did see, I think, in Europe, uh, which means that you would, the bank, uh, you would pay the bank to keep your money because that would be safer than gambling on, on, on Wall Street, right? Um, so the banks would actually, you would actually pay the banks a small percentage to hold your money. You would lose money, but not as much as you would if you were speculating. So, you know, this is the denouement, as, as the French might say, right? We're at that moment now uh, where you can't raise interest rates. I mean, 1%, to put that into context, in, during the uh, first stagflation crisis, when Paul Volcker was the uh, Fed chair uh, uh, and wages were high, right? This was, this was uh, wages were part of the calculation of the first stagflation uh, crisis back in the late 70s, early 80s. During that time, to sort of slow down the economy and, and therefore reduce inflation, Paul Volcker increased the uh, uh, federal funds rate, the overnight lending rate, the rate at which banks lend money, uh, the Federal, federal Reserve lends, banks, lends money to uh, uh, retail banks. Uh, that he increased that rate to 21.5%, right? And that did, it killed inflation. It also killed job growth. Now we're at a point where we're talking about 1% inflation, which tells you that the economy is so fragile, right? We don't really produce anything of value. And so uh, uh, 1%, which is going to slow growth, not nearly as much as 21.5%, but we didn't really have any growth to speak of anyway. And so we're really between a rock and a hard place. Raising the interest rates is going to kill what little economic activity we have. But at the same time, inflation is basically cutting into everyone's spending power. And so we're very much between a rock and a hard place, one that certainly 
no industrial superpower has ever seen before, although you can argue that we're no longer an industrial superpower. And how we get out is anyone's guess. Um, it, I, I'll say this. Uh, if, if, if the American people haven't learned anything or don't learn anything else from this crisis that we're about to face, I hope it's that this pattern of uh, going to the polls every four years to vote for, um, you know, this sucker or that sucker who the Republicans or the Democrats put it, put before you, uh, I hope people realize that those days are over. We have to get active. We have to organize. We have to get our own people in office. We got to get, have to get people in office who will actually respond to our needs, not send $40 billion to Ukraine, but will send $40 billion to the homeless populations in Los Angeles and New York and Chicago. Um, so anyway, that, that's my that's my short take, I guess, or hot take, I guess, as Sally said today, uh, on where we are and what is sort of bearing down on us in this moment. And, you know, John, the last time we were talking about stagflation in this country was during, uh, speaking of suckers, the Nixon administration, you know. And look, I've got no love for that guy, certainly. But at least he was proactive, I guess, or or his reaction to stagflation was to directly tell uh, uh, the, the corporate uh, uh, the corporate class, look, you cannot price gouge the American people. And I mean, it seems that sort of worked. And I guess that's as much credit as I'm going to give him for anything ever. But I mean, clearly we don't have an administration that is willing to do that. All we're getting out of Biden is this, you know, feeble, barely discernible finger wagging to the oil companies. You guys better, you know, pump more oil, which that's that's not really that's not the problem. The problem is they're just really price gouging folks. So, I mean. I don't think, John, that with the current administration, we're we're going to come out of this certainly not unscathed, but certainly not in in a, in the kind of position that the country was in even after Nixon. And I mean, what do you think that portends for uh, the two party electoral system and the Democratic Party in particular, specifically Joseph Robinette Biden? Oh man, what a great question, Jackie. First, let me say this: uh, I. I uh, I've written a book, which I'm hoping to publish soon, on the history of the class war in America. And one of the biggest revelations, I knew this to some extent, but I didn't understand the, the full scope of it. Nixon might have been the most brilliant person in the White House we've ever had in the United States. The problem, of course, is that he used his genius for evil. I mean, the man was truly evil. We talk about Reagan, and rightly so. Uh, we talk about Bill Clinton, and rightly so. But really, Nixon was, and the reason for that is because Nixon was actually a Keynesian. Nixon was raised, you know, he came up during the New Deal. He still believed in a sort of working class politics, but he used it. He turned that against the people. And I won't get into detail on how he did that. But but so, so, so the point I'm making is that he actually responded to people's needs just long enough so that he could, he could sort of affect his very evil agenda. And so, you know, Nixon saw inflation and what he did and we have, there is not a chance in hell that this will happen with the Biden administration. <laughs> Nixon actually uh, criminalized inflation. He told, now he, he criminalized wage growth at the same time. But what he did was he said, you know, uh, I can't remember, I think it was 1971. Uh, he said, you know, uh, had a, a, a speech and he said, look, uh, at 12 o'clock midnight, uh, if the wages go up beyond what they are today, if they go up tomorrow beyond what they are today, 
federal agents will come into that business and they will arrest you, right? He criminalized, that's what a wage freeze is. Um, and he did that because of course people were, people wanted him to do something about inflation. So he took this action, which is completely legal, right? Um, and, and, and Nixon had a way of responding to crises in a way that was creative and inventive. I dare say that if Nixon was in the White House today, he would be run out of office as, a, as too liberal, uh, which is stunning to think about. But he really wasn't. I mean, the man created the EPA. But, but to your point, right, um, we're, out of, we're out of, oh boy, how do I say this? Uh, the, the, the ruling class in this country no longer has answers. We have dug such a hole for ourselves over the last, since Nixon, right, uh, our last really, really the last critical thinker as a president, not, not someone who just responded to Wall Street or responded to his constituency, but someone who actually created programs. Nixon pushed uh, and almost got past a basic income grant um, uh, in, in, uh, in the um, 19, early 1970s and um, uh, just barely failed. So, um, but now we don't have these kind of creative thinkers, these kind of critical thinkers who can actually respond to our needs, right? They are so, they are so uh, captured by Wall Street in particular, Big Oil also, that they no longer can produce, no longer capable of producing the ideas that we need that will actually sort of start to turn this thing around. Barack Obama is, you know, people are always uh, are upset with me because I, I pick on Barack Obama a lot, but really he was the key because he was, he came, when he came into office in 2000 and, and, and was it nine? 2009, yeah. He, <laughs> yeah, when, when he came into office, uh, it was basically, it was effectively the same moment as when Franklin Roosevelt came in office, right? The capitalist economy had imploded, but but you, you didn't have to necessarily, as I would perhaps wish, in the capitalist system, you could tinker with it just to sort of rehabilitate, to restructure it, right? Obama could have made a lot of those changes, which would not have ended capitalism, right? But it would have gotten... It would have it would have uh, uh, revived a stalled economy, right? Uh, and so Biden is even worse. Joe Biden is not just Obama for all his flaws is not a dumb man, right? Joe Biden is clearly in a state of cognitive decline. I direct uh, your listeners to the uh, videotape of um, Joe Biden's appearance on it was the Jimmy Kimmel show the other day. The man is clearly in a state of cognitive decline. Plus, he's he's been captured by. Wall Street. So there's not going to be any answers to our most vexing problems that come out of Washington, D.C. We, the people, are going to have to produce them and make them happen. Um, there's just no, there's no chance, zero chance of Washington, of our political class producing the ideas that will actually begin to dig us out of this hole. They, we, you know, we've, we are a nation that has been stupefied to death. Yeah. And, you know, John, you know, uh, when you when you make that uh, a comment like like you just made in terms of how we're not going to be seeing any real answer or solution to to these pressing issues. I mean, I tend to agree and I feel like and this is what I always wonder, you know, with the number of different issues as <clears throat> conditions continue to worsen. 
in the United States and those in power, these uh, ruling class parties uh, continue to refuse to do anything about it. I mean, that there, it, to me, it's inevitable that there's a, going to be a kind of political uh, comeuppance or, or a backlash or an impact in that way uh, uh, in terms of how it plays out. And I think we, you know, very well may be seeing that fairly soon with midterms and what may happen in 2024 when it's time for another presidential election in the United States. And so what do you see as sort of the political impacts of, I mean, honestly, this 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 ruling class sort of uh, uh, just brushing off, frankly, of the needs of millions of uh, poor working and oppressed people in this country, particularly coming from a Biden administration who we were told was uh, coming to save us? Yeah, I don't I don't you know, I, you know, no one can predict the future, of course. I mean, the history tells us that we are at a fork in the road. One road leads towards socialism. One, word, one road leads towards fascism. My guess is that we will take the road towards fascism first and hopefully later the road towards socialism. But that's the way things are shaping up. That's, of course, what happened to uh, Nazi Germany. Um, and, and, uh, and, and you can make an argument that's what happened to Russia even in the early 1990s when the Soviet Union uh, fell apart. Um, but yes, I think there's definitely going to be a political reckoning in uh, November. Uh, the Democrats, I think, are going to be crushed. Uh, and I think the same is going to happen no matter who they put up to run for the White House. I, I, I'm sure there's a robust debate right now within Democratic circles, by which I mean uh, on Wall Street uh, by investors. There's a robust conversation uh, to replace Joe Biden. But I don't know who they could replace him with. Uh, not even Barack Obama at this point. I don't. I'm not sure that he would be a sure thing. In fact, I think he would probably lose certainly to Trump, uh, and maybe even to um, who's my man in Florida, uh, the governor there, DeSantis. Uh, yeah, I think I think it would be even uphill uh, there, right? Because the Democrats have simply failed to do anything for their most loyal constituencies, and you know we have to say it that especially means. African Americans, right? We have been the most neglected constituency, not just for the history of this country, but especially since the election of the first black of the first black president. Uh, and so, yeah, there's going to be a price to pay. You know, not because I think you know blacks uh, will uh, vote for the Republicans in local races or in uh, uh, national races for for Congress or for the White House, but because. I think you'll see uh, very, very many black people stay home, um, which is, of course, my plan. Uh, and I don't blame anyone who does go out to vote. But I think that's almost inevitable at this point, you know, barring something um, unforeseen. Um, uh, and, and I don't I don't we, we just don't have the resources right now, the critical faculties to sort of immediately begin to dig our way out of that. We don't sort of understand the terms of debate as much as the rest of the world does, which, you know, which is why we have so many people waving Ukrainian flags. You know, the Ukraine is the home, is the vanguard of neo-Nazism in the world today. Yeah, we've got, you know, Americans, many of whom profess to be liberals, waving the flag, uh, waving the Ukrainian flag. Um, and, you know, and even, you know, unfortunately, African-Americans such as Reverend William Barber, who I respect, but I mean, you know, uh, his support for Ukraine and this war in Ukraine is preposterous and uh, an abdication of leadership. Uh, Bill Fletcher, a labor organizer, you know, has done the same. And these people, uh, there needs to be a reckoning, not just for our for the Democrats and, and the governing class, but I think also, and this is very important to me, I think, I think, or, or maybe I should say it's, it's a very essential in my mind, I think 
African-Americans in particular have to really have a reckoning with our elected leadership and our and our our and our unelected leadership, you know, people like Reverend Barber, we really have to have a conversation with them and about them, about where they have led us really for the last 50 years, but particularly over the last decade, right? They have led us down this road. They have told us, continue, look, you put aside your anger, you know, you work with us on this American project and everything will turn out okay. Well, it hasn't turned out okay. It's turned out just the opposite. Black people face an existential threat in the United States right now. We have lost more wealth over the last 14 years and at any time uh, in American history, dating back to at least the end of the Civil War and the uh, and the uh, uh, the collapse of the Freedmen's Bank, right? Uh, and so, yeah, we, we, we really face a very real crisis, one that no one alive has ever seen before, and one that it will be very difficult to work our way out, out of, right? It'd be very hard to dig our way out of this hole in part because we've not had the conversation that we need to be having. We've not really had that conversation since really the early 80s at, at, at best, right? This conversation about, about class, about workers, about capital, and about blacks and about whites, uh, about you know, the very different political languages that, that we speak, uh, about you know, private property and public property. We just haven't had these conversations. So you know, how long would it take us if we just started zero? How long will it take us right now to have a conversation, a real conversation, about the need for worker co-ops, right? Worker co-ops will have to play a role in the reconstruction of the United States. And I don't think, I doubt if one, more than one in 10 Americans right now knows what a worker co-op is or what they, or how they operate or where they are uh, used to um, any great extent. Definitely. We're going to move to our first break of the hour on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik and Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here of Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines are now open 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. Myself and Jackie Lukeman continue to be joined by John Jeter. And uh, John, you know, I want to agree with something that you said uh, a moment ago, um, because on the show, you know, we often like to say that we're at a point in the United States where we're either going to have uh, socialism or societal collapse. Like things have really reached that kind of um, inflection point, I think. And I think that's uh, entirely appropriate given uh, how you were discussing how you're working on this book about the, the history of the class war, because I feel like we're seeing that very war, I mean, just raging uh, here in the U.S. I mean, not that it wasn't already, but uh, I feel like with just the sort of um, uh, converging and intermingling uh, issues and really contradictions of capitalism is what they are. that are all sort of uh, meeting and, and imploding all at the same time. Um, uh, we're seeing a real kind of uh, 
uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Not 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 a reckoning, but I think we're seeing, you know, poor working and oppressed people, you know, sort of increasingly becoming uh, sharply aware. I mean, not only of their sort of uh, material situation, but the fact that those who are in power and, and the people that, you know, they're told that they have to, to vote for or the, the sky will fall and the mountains will crumble and the seas will boil and all these sorts of things that these folks clearly aren't doing anything for them and are almost coming to a jump where they're not even pretending to, you know, and it's like we're constantly put in this this trick bag, this sort of cyclical hamster wheel thing of uh, uh, demanding that we need X, Y, Z. We need health care. We need living wages. We, we need uh, uh, to do something about the environment. There's all these life and death issues that people really have. And the Democrats say, yeah, well, that's cute. You got to vote for me, though, to keep the Republican out. And the rest of that stuff is just going to have to fall by the wayside in every single time we we are told that this is the proper thing to do now that is not the same as a class consciousness and i don't think that class consciousness can be developed uh, uh, by accident or spontaneously, no matter how bad things get. That's something that I think can only come on a mass scale from, uh, uh, you know, organizing and building a mass movement. But even so, I'm just wondering how you sort of see the class war aspect of things playing out right now as the masses of poor, working and oppressed folks seem like they're poised to take, you know, a few more blows uh, because of the contradictions of this capitalist system. Well, I agree with you there. there um, I, I do think more and more people are starting to understand uh, that we are behind the eight ball. And around the country, I am hearing almost daily, uh, I'm hearing about small efforts to organize around, around schools that are being shuttered at, or that serve um, subpar food to, to, to the parents' children and um, these smaller labor organizing um, efforts, uh, people walking off the job because of abuse, um, you know, blacks and Latinos sometimes walking off the job because of abuse or even because, um, uh, uh, the, 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 the white bosses are trying to turn or trying to pit, uh, Latinos against blacks in California and, and in New York. Um, uh, so you're seeing all these things. The problem is that they're not connecting and they're not connecting because the media, you know, all our institutions are failed, but I would argue that the media is the is the most glaring failure in this sort of collapsed state, this failed state that we have, and they're not telling us, they're not keeping us in touch with each other. They're not accounting for the despair that so many of us feel, and and by doing that, they would give us some idea of how we can connect and begin to rebuild together, right? How we can unite, begin to rebuild together. They, you identify the enemy, and then you, and by identifying the enemy, as the Black Panther said, you can describe the phenomena that afflicts you. Then you can begin to address it. We can't even describe it. We, we have a few people who can do that, um, but we, but for the most part, you know, we're just trying to come to terms with. Uh, the fact that the system is not working, it's not working for us, and we need to, to dig out. I, one argument I continue to have with people uh, on social media is about uh, voting, and I don't, I don't, I would never discourage anyone from voting. I, I haven't voted for a Democrat since John Kerry, uh, and I would argue that the Democrats are uh, worse than the Republicans now because the Democrats start more wars. They're the more militaristic party at this point. Uh, whether I'm right or wrong, right? I might very well be wrong. I've been wrong before, and I'm likely to be wrong again. Whether I'm right or wrong, we need to at least be able to have that conversation. And that's what we're not having. So our options are limited, very limited in terms of 
beginning to recover from this in a way that they weren't in 1933 during the Great Depression when Franklin Roosevelt came in office. There was a much more full-throated conversation led in part, ironically, uh, by the Soviet Union, which had uh, recruited uh, uh, many Americans, including many black people. People don't understand this. Many black people to the Soviet Union began during Lenin's time and continued after Lenin's death, um, ended pretty much during World War II, but they recruited black people to come over to study communism. They came back and they really started the New Deal, right? It was, you know, the Scottsboro Boys, this organizing around the Scottsboro Boys, these nine black young men who had been arrested falsely and charged for uh, raping these two young white women who were, you know, sex workers uh, uh, because they had to be. They didn't, they couldn't have, they couldn't find work. Uh, and and it was you know communists and particularly black communists and also Jews right who uh, really started that conversation you know about well why why do the bosses own everything and of course we didn't become a communist state but it was just that tension between this far left and this very conservative factions within the United States the capitalists that created the New Deal right that carved out more public space and so you had things for instance we're talking about inflation right now right. One of the things that happened after the, after the the war ended, World War II ended, you had a situation where all these uh, unions, which couldn't strike during the war, they were legally forbidden from striking during the war, they went on strike. One of the uh, strikes was by, I think it was General Motors, and it was like 1946, I think, and they wanted a 25% wage increase. But here was the caveat. They wanted the wage increase with no concomitant increase in the price of cars. That's a level of class consciousness. I don't know how far away we are from that, but it's a long ways from having that level of class consciousness. And by the way, they had done their homework. They realized that the car companies could actually give a 25% uh, wage increase without losing any money. In other words, they would, they would maintain a level of profit uh, that that they had before the war, even with the twenty five percent wage increase and no increase in the price of cars, so we we are we are really behind the eight ball now in large part because we've devalued language and conversation and critical thinking, um, and, and so we don't even know we don't really have the tools to work our way out of it. I don't know what's going to spark. Uh, well, no, that's not true. I do know it's going to spark uh, a change. What's going to spark a change is complete collapse, which I think is um, we, we may see any day now. Uh, but short of that, you know, we're just kind of spinning our wheels, despite the fact that we do have, like I say, activists all over the country in Oakland, where there's a, uh, a basically an occupation of a school that the uh, school board is trying to close. And uh, all across the country, we see these le efforts like yours, even, you know, the efforts, the media efforts to sort of get the news out. Uh, but we need something that makes it connect. We need those. If I can steal from George uh, Bush uh, senior, we need those thousand points of light to intersect, uh, and that's the next step in our in our education in our in the American people's comeback. Hmm. And and you know, as you were going through that history, John, I kept thinking about the other side of of that struggle the 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 the, uh, the paranoia 
of of the of the the capitalist class and the people who aspire to be in the capitalist class. And I feel like we still see that. And there's so much of that at work against us, not just um, from the folks who who uh, uh, write the laws and, and make the policies and, and put on the uniforms and, you know, beat us over the head, uh, you know, with with billy clubs. And, and well, now it's it's, you know, military weaponry and such. But but you 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 know, I, I think there is still very much this very connected history of uh, paranoia of the people who literally supplanted one group of people and or the descendants of the people who supplanted one group of people and forced another group of people to do their work for them in building up this empire. They they like have this uh, uh, ongoing fear. And I think you expressed it really, really well in in a recent Patreon post that you did where you talk about they're they're uh, always feeling like someone is watching them. The brief history of settler paranoia from the Great War to the Great Replacement. And I feel like that is the other side of the struggle that we are in, that we certainly have to organize and struggle against political uh, malfeasance. But then then there's that. There is the the I, I guess the public uh, paranoia, the public danger that we face among these people who really are afraid that we're going to do to them what they did to us. So so they figure they have to strike first. And that goes all the way back to Jefferson. Jefferson talked about uh, the horrors that were visited that were visited upon black people. Now we would always harbor these these feelings uh, of of vengeance, uh, bloodlust. Uh, of course, we know you you and I know Jackie, right? There's no um, African American thinker or leader. There's no African leader or thinker who is who is uh, who has had a broad following who has ever espoused such a thing. We want nothing of the sort, right? We don't, you know, as Fred Hampton say, you don't, uh, you know, you don't fight hate with hate. You don't fight violence with violence, right? You don't fight fire with, with fire. Uh, and so, yeah, but they, they do. This is something that we really, this is not marginal. This is the point, right? The United States is, uh, um, the, the United States brokenness is attributable primarily to one thing, uh, maybe two, but I, I'll say, I'll, for, for this argument, I'll say one, and that is racism, right? What do I mean by that? The, the the ruling class, mostly white men, right, uh, figured out many, many years ago that they would rather have, they would rather fight a race war than a class war, right? In a class war, you have white and black and brown and all workers, most workers, fighting against the rich, right? It's no, it's, you know, it's no tribalism in that. It's a class struggle, right? Uh, Amilcar Cabral, um, could tell you that, right? The differences between class are far greater than the differences between tribe. But in the United States, we have, from time immemorial, uh, instructed on a daily basis, bombarded, really, uh, almost like a war within itself, where we, we have this sort of constant leaflet drop from the sky telling white people, you are white. You are white, right? What is whiteness? Whiteness is intended. Whiteness, not the Irish, not, not the, not the uh, Italians, not the Germans. 
whiteness is intended to be a kind of scab, something that is a thing apart. I don't. I won't join with those people. Yes, they are workers, but they are less than me, right? But the reality is, this is and this is the thing I think we really need to talk about. The reality is, most white people of a certain age know that that's not true. They know that. I, look, you know, I, I, I have had, uh, I've had some real experiences with people, employers, who have uh, fired me and 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 pushed me out and and you know, uh, told called me basically everything but a child of God. They didn't do that because I'm dumb, right? Uh, let's just be honest. And I'm not, and I'm not unique in that regard, right? They they know that uh, at the very least we are as smart as they are, and frankly. Their fear is that we are even smarter. And certainly from an emotional standpoint, because we have to figure, we have to understand them to survive, right? We have to understand their insecurities. We have to do this to put food on our table and to raise our kids to understand their loathing of us because they are insecure. They are deeply insecure, right? Uh, and, and so, and they're, and they're insecure because they've been told that they are so great and yet they can go and see every day that they are not. This is part of the reason why we have in sport, and I've noticed this recently, uh, or more recently, this this sort of loathing of the athletes in in sports journalism, on ESPN, and even of course the black uh, uh, so-called journalists participate. This this sort of uh, uh, you know, there used to be a thing in journalism where we talked about fair comment, right? Well, you know, um, the other day I was listening to uh, ESPN talk about uh, some basketball game, and they were asking whether or not some athlete got punked. But that has no place in uh, journalism or in a public comment. That's jail language. You know, you might have lost the game. Maybe you played badly. But you don't talk about somebody getting punked. What do you do that? You do that when you're trying to racialize a group of people. And you racialize them to show them as unfit, right, unfit to participate in public life. That's why we are here. The stagflation crisis started because blacks represented one-third of the labor unions at that time, and we were forceful. We were advocates for real transformative change, and we had this nation on a path to social democracy, right? And and they didn't want, the ruling class didn't want that, so they fought back, you know, uh, they, they began really with, with, with Nixon, but really escalated under Reagan. And what, did, what was Reagan's message? They're welfare queens. They're, they're, they're driving cows while you're driving a, 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 a eight-year-old Buick, right? Which was completely untrue. But they, what, what did Goebbels say? The bigger the lie, the more they want to believe it. That's what we have to deal with as Americans. I don't know how we deal with it, uh, African-Americans. I don't know how we deal with it because I, I, I think more and more that the answer is um, almost, I won't go into detail because it would take too long, but I think almost a two-state solution. I'm not sure that blacks, at least in any you know, as, as James Baldwin said, they've been white, white people have been white for far too long. And I'm not sure they're capable of seeing black people as equals or as fellow workers. And so that puts a ceiling on just how far we can go as a people. Uh, and so maybe we need to start thinking about how we can build walls between our community and their community so that we don't see, you know, 18 uh, year old white boys walking into a grocery store with the N word on the, on the, uh, uh, painted on their gun. And, and shooting and killing 10 people. And nobody does a thing about it. Nobody has anything to say about it. So, um, yeah, this is this is something we need to really discuss. The African-American African community really, really needs to really address this because it's real, right? We, we've been sold this bill of goods by people like Barack Obama, Kamala Harris, James Clyburn, and all these black people. And, you know, and, 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 and even 
some of these younger people who might not be selling us the bill of goods, but they're not doing anything to help change the situation. Uh, we've been told that we do certain things, if we abide by these sort of rules, if we join in, if we integrate into this, into this uh, culture of death, that's what American society is, the culture of death, right? That if we participate fully, and so you've got uh, the, the, the uh, Pentagon chief, a black man, you know, arguing for war uh, in Ukraine, and the, sec the UN uh, Secretary to the United, United States, Secretary of the United Nations, a black woman arguing for war in Ukraine. We're participating, and yet we keep falling farther and farther behind. Why? Racism, right? And we weren't meant, we weren't meant to, to, to uh, we were brought here to be exploited, right? And we're not going to be exploited, we're going to be killed. We need to understand that. That's the truth, right? And we have to sort of address that. So how do we work our way out of that? How do we sort of break free? How do we emancipate the African finally after 400 years of oppression, of murder, and of kleptocracy? And we're going to move to another quick break on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik and Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. My dear friends, phone lines are still open. 202-521-1320. That's two. 02521-1320. I am here. Jackie Lukeman is here. John Jeter is here. And Jackie, a moment ago, um, John uh was talking about how the United States is a culture of death. Mm -hmm. And I think that definitely resonates with a lot of what we discuss here on the show, as we often call the US uh, a death cult. And uh uh and there really is a kind of cult-like character to it in the sense of how this capitalist state through its propaganda arms, which is not just the corporate owned media, but is education, uh, uh, social media, I would argue, and all these sorts of things that they indoctrinate people to make them think that this, this, this blood soaked inhumane empire is somehow for them mm -hmm. or they have a part in it or that they benefit something from it all of course out of uh, uh, an attempt to keep the whole thing in place because if if the rank and file person feels that US imperialism is a part of them a part of their identity and who they are well then they're far less likely to resist it you know what i mean and so th this is what we mean when we talk about just the depth of propagandization that uh, uh, the people of the United States have been subject to for years and just having their conscience battered by uh, uh, these ruling class uh, uh, lies, frankly. And so, I mean, for me, it just sort of shows how if, if you recognize that this capitalism is a culture of death, we have to ask, OK, well, what kind of system then is going to be one that uh, promotes life? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And so when we talk about socialism or societal collapse, and I think we've reached a point where we really have to be clear on what we mean by socialism. 
So when I say socialism, I'm not just talking about health care for all. Oh, that's a part of it. Right. I'm not just talking about living wages for everyone who works and, uh, uh, you know, uh, also money for those who aren't able to work. That's a part of it. All these things that we think of as like, quote unquote, progressive uh, uh, measures um, are good in and of themselves. But when we talk about a revolutionary kind of socialism, we're not talking about a set of policies, right? Because policies can be overturned. They can be changed. I mean, we're, we're, I mean, we're seeing that now on a number of levels. We're seeing it with Roe v. Wade. We're seeing it with um, this uh, racist voter suppression that the Democrats also aren't doing anything about. You know what I mean? And so when you talk about a, a revolutionary kind of socialism, you're talking about a complete overturning of uh, uh, the state as it is right now. And really, it's also about the moving of power from the hands of the wealthy elite or the capitalist class into the hands of the masses of poor, working, and oppressed people who actually produce that wealth and therefore should be able to enjoy it. Workers make the world run, therefore workers should run the world. It's just that simple. And in that way, we see the interest of humanity take center stage in society instead of the interest of maximizing profit and in the interest of capital, which does not benefit of the overwhelming majority of us. And so, you know, I think it was uh, Thomas Sankara that said, you know, we have to dare to invent the future. Right. And uh, that may sound like some, you know, uh, uh, spacey type of thinking. But it's very real. I mean, this is coming from someone, number one, who led a revolution, so he knows what he's talking about. But when we talk about invent the future, that means that we have to be bold enough to, number one, have a vision and a program and then have the strength, the tenacity, and above all else, the organization to make that vision and that program manifest and thereby creating this new society. And so if we're going to do that, Jack, I think we have to be clear on what it's going to take and what it's going to demand of us. And we can't be afraid of that. And we also can't be afraid of power, which I think a lot of people are. You feel me? That right there. I think we have been so oppressed for so long. I think some of us actually believe maybe if I do have power, I will go a little wild and I will, you know, go on some type of bloody rampage. And, and you know, I think there's that, that that I think is a legitimate fear. But there's also, I think, more than that. And I'm just I'm being completely facetious and, and ridiculous with that. I think more than that, people are are very concerned that power has been given such a negative connotation because of the way it's been used by the people who have power now that people are almost afraid to do anything different because they don't want to be perceived as like those folks, right? There, are, there is going to have to be a time, and I think that time is absolutely right now, where we are clear on who our allies and who our enemies are. That in every revolution, that must be clear. There are people you can organize with and there are people you need to stay away from because they are a danger to you. And I think for us in particular, for for us who are black revolutionaries, this is always a difficult conversation for me, Sean, because mm-hmm. I understand the need to have class solidarity with white working class folks. Absolutely. And that that is not even a question. The thing is, 
in my 55 or some odd years of life, I've run into a lot of white working class folks who are like, yeah, the capitalists are bad, but you know those blacks. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and and at some point you just have to recognize when you when you encounter those folks, if you cannot engage with them, you just got to let those folks be where they are. That's not where you are going to be, because there are plenty of working class white folks who are right in the same same lane, wanting the same things you want and who will struggle and fight right, right along with you. But but this pursuit, I think that we are expected, particularly we black radicals are expected to doggedly pursue these clearly racist white working class folks who want nothing to do with any kind of revolution or change or whatever with black folks. I that that is a distraction of time. It's it's and I I think it's a fool's errand when there are when the fields are so much more fertile um, w- with other folks who are receptive to uh, uh, the struggle, who are in the struggle and who want to struggle with us. That that's one thing. And th- and then there is always, you know, the struggle of the black bourgeois, the struggle with or against the black bourgeoisie, you know, and and their uh, um, uh, uh, collaboration with the very forces that we are fighting against and not just, you know, those in high places, the Herman Cain's and the Lloyd Austin's. And no, those are, of course, they're the problems. But we also have to deal with the folks in in our families, in our neighborhood, Sean, who are like, I want to be like Jay-Z, celebrating the fact that, you know, LeBron James (laughs) is now a billionaire and somehow that matters. It doesn't make any. So, So we're fighting this struggle toward Socialism, scientific socialism for (laughs) the survival of the working class, poor and oppressed people in this country. And we're doing it sometimes, John, even we're in this struggle. I, I find we're in this struggle even for those folks who don't want the same thing with us. That's like the wild thing about this. Like at some point when we get there. People will realize, oh, they were right. This is better. And we're going to have to, you know, that they're going to have to enjoy the fruits of our labor. But I think that's just, you know, that's just the way things go. There has been no revolution that has been fought or won by the majority of the people who were fighting the revolution. It's always been a small group of very committed ideological folks who caught that fire and were able to convince a few other folks, hey, this fire is actually not going to burn. It's going to burn away some stuff that we don't need and clear a path for some stuff that's so much better for all of us, even those knuckleheads over there. Let, let, let's get this. Yeah. A real quick shout out to the uh, Vitamins Necessary chat. Nawadi said, I don't understand not wanting power. I'm explaining to you exactly what that is, because what it really is, is that, you know, the easiest thing in the world is to have the most perfect, pure, uh, radical politics when they don't mean anything and they don't impact anything more to the point, you could hold any position, but they're not going to influence anything because you're not empowered to make them influence anything. You see what I mean? And so it's, it's like you have people who, you know, they'll support, say, the Palestinian struggle 
because they're very clearly um, uh, 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 people who are under this uh, uh, genocidal reality under uh, Zionist Israel for all these years. But if those same masses of uh, Palestinian people who uh, have been struggling for all this time were able to actually rise up and take power, well, then all of a sudden they'd be cast off as authoritarian and all of that. That's why people love martyrs uh, in in this uh, particular way, because martyrs are frozen in time. And you can kind of make them and, and mold them what you want. And particularly for people who never really got to live to to be in power. Well, then they can hold them up, you know, as these uh, uh, almost utopian figures because, you know, they didn't have to make these kinds of, of difficult decisions that uh, uh, may uh, uh, violate or trespass this uh, pure kind of politics that, that people uh, uh, seem to want to have sometimes. And so but see what, what I'm really discussing is like the issue of idealism. This is the issue of idealism versus materialism. People think that we're just going to, you know, philosophize our way uh, uh, into a new society. And that's just not so. I mean, uh, I know what Karl Marx said something to the effect of, you know, philosophers have, uh, you know, only sought to understand the world, but we have to seek to change it. You know what I mean? And, you know, not to go on a rant, but this is precisely why, you know, these little uh, arguments that we see on Twitter, you know, uh, amongst the different left wing people are just so pointless because the, these little uh, trifling, uh, uh, obscure, um, uh, esoteric uh, topics and points of history uh, that, you know, 19 people on Twitter think are important means absolutely nothing uh, to the rank and file person on the streets. And I think we have to remember, you know, there's 140 million people living at or below the poverty line and they and their plight are far more uh, a better use of our time and resources than going back and forth with some fool who has like a cartoon fox for his uh, a profile page. You know what I mean? And so also in, in, in getting to to what you were saying, Jackie, um, about the issue of racism. I mean, it's a fact that white supremacy is the greatest obstacle to class solidarity in the United States. That's why whiteness as a concept was necessary. And I think John was mentioning this earlier. It's absolutely true that, uh, I mean, there was a time where we had these different European groups. We had um, Italians and Irish and Polish and Greek and Armenian and all these sorts of things. But it became necessary to congeal all these different uh, 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 European groups into this 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 blob uh, of uh, a Europe uh, of, of white identity as a way to sort of help protect this uh, a capitalist system. And I mean, we have seen uh, different instances throughout history of uh, interracial organizing. Um, definitely, this is something that is uh, discussed in, in Robin D.G. Kelly's uh, Hammer and Ho. Shout out to him. Had him on the show not long ago. That was really great. And uh, uh, it's even it's like if you think about Reagan's Southern strategy, you know, it, it's this idea that if you can make the, the poorest, worst off white man still think that he's better than the most economically well-off black man, well, then you've got him. you got yourself a sucker for life. You can tell him anything. You can, you can, you can get him to, to, to support something that outright hurts him because all he has to hold on to is his complexion for the connection. This is what we have to struggle against as we um, uh, uh, go through our 
uh, you know, and building this movement. Uh, you see what I mean? There's no there's no getting around it. I actually don't think that a kind of a separation deal is is really all that uh, feasible, given the uh, uh, given the, the the broader circumstances. And, and really, there's a lot that has to be challenged and that we have to struggle uh, with each other with if we're going to move the movement forward, you know, and this is what we really mean when we talk about coalitions and all those sorts of things. My friends, if it was easy, we wouldn't call it struggle. And what we need to be clear on is that we're at an inflection point in this country where these things have to be addressed. But we're going to leave it there for today here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. One thing, John Jeter, so much for joining us today. We'll be back tomorrow with an all-new episode. So as always, we'll see you next time. Peace. By any means necessary.